Good morning. Um, I was reminded this week of a situation that happened as I was diving into the sermon this week of a situation that happened 15 years ago that I'm going to talk about a little bit. And it's not so much that, you know, there's those things that we do that we try to get compliments. Like, do these jeans make me look fat? You know, like, what are we really saying? My wife's like, yeah, they look, you look horrendous. You know, you look nice. Like, we say things hoping to get a response. This isn't one of those stories where I'm like, oh, Pastor Dale, we, we feel bad. It's just, a, it's just something I experienced. Um, when I was a younger pastor, one of the uh, difficult things for me to navigate was the internal tension um, of what I saw in God's word, what I believe God was saying to me, and the tension of maybe what other pastors, Christian leaders, congregants were saying to me what I should be doing, or what I should be about. You see, I would see in scripture uh, these deep things around love. Man, we just sang some stuff around love. And it's interesting when you give a message around the love of God, or that God has called us to love people, even just the word love, we can sit and interpret that so many ways. And we get a little nervous, like, well, if we really love people, what if they think differently than we do? But I would see all throughout scripture these powerful words about God's love. I saw it as the evidence what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They will know we are Christians by our love. It is the verb in the great commandment to love God and to love your neighbor. But what I found interesting even looking back at almost every interview I've ever gone through in my life or going through seminary, I don't think I was ever asked Tell us about how you love people. Tell us about how you love God. It was almost always, and I'm not dissing this, I'm not, just almost like, tell us the things you believe. What are your, like, stances? Like, what are the list of things? Even though lists of things aren't transformative, I was only usually asked about those things. And not, like, the greatest commandment of all. <laughs> Like, how are you loving God? I would often hear as a pastor, you need to be this. Or you should be talking about this. Or you should align yourself with this. There was a lot of blanks to be filled in. And it just didn't sit well with me. And back then I would look at it as anxiousness or like anxiety or like there's something wrong with me. But now I look back, I'm like, no, it just deeply made me sad. I didn't really know what to do with that. And a lot of these pressures was just around coming from like human opinions or human systems. And as a majority, um, when I went to this church, after I was the youth pastor here, okay, so I tell people this. As a young man, I always wanted to do something nobody else has done. I mean, do you ever have that? Like, I want to do something no one else has done. I think I've done it. I've come back to the same church three times. I know nobody else who has done this. All right? So, like, is your pastor special? He, oh, he's special. When I left being the youth pastor here and I was, like, an older youth pastor and took a plane flight to Hawaii and all of a sudden I got off the plane and I was a younger lead pastor. Right? And on my first Sunday there, there was a, some people who showed up just to see what I thought about what they thought about, whether I was right or wrong. And it was kind of these obscure theologies around things. 
like very narrow-minded, like this is how the world's going to end. What do you think? And I'm like, well, I think maybe this. He's like, you're wrong. Okay, welcome to Hawaii. <laughs> you know? Or just some very unique, special things. And I remember there was this time and I was like, it was kind of getting in the political season. I think there was a presidential election and there was so much pressure of like, you're going to endorse this person or this person. We want equal. Like, that was what all the conversations was about. And I remember I gave this sermon just around the love of God. Like, what would it look like if we truly sought God first? Like, seek God's kingdom first. What would it truly look like if we fix our eyes on Jesus? Like, what would it really look like? What, how would that determine everything else if we really loved God? And I'm like, I don't want us to get entangled with all these things. So we're going to be about Jesus, not all of these things first. And I was caught in this tension. It felt like my choices were, do we have compassion or conviction? When I think what he was saying to me, there's an and that needs to be in there. That we have compassion and conviction. It was a different response from a few. Though many were like, yeah, we're about Jesus. For a few, they were like, hmm. No, we really still want to know what the fill in the blank was. There was a few that saw me as fearful or scared to take a real stand because they defined in their heart what a real stand was. And it was from a system. You know, there's this idea that you can't love and disagree with someone. If you show them love, it means you're endorsing what they're doing. And yet I remember my daughter being a preteen at that time, and oh, we greatly disagreed, but I still greatly loved her, that it is possible to disagree and love at the same time. And even though the ultimate act of love was right smack in the middle of this tension that while we were sinning, Christ died for us, there is no greater like, we reject you, okay, I'll die for you. And yet we're so afraid to really love it came to a point where this man, I think he maybe he had come a couple of times, was driving through my neighborhood. I lived up on the hill, saw me in, this front, in my front yard, and he decided to come out. And what often is the case, well, not often, sometimes is the case, someone says, oh, I have a word from the Lord for you. And so I'm like, okay. But his word for the Lord was this, you are likable, funny. I'm like, God thinks I'm funny? Sweet. And in many ways, you're a breath of fresh air. But. Yeah. He said this to me, but you are weak and scared. If you continue down this path of this communication around love, you will become a false teacher. I was like, that's the word of the Lord for me. I felt alone. I felt like a failure. You see, I thought I'd taken a stand with Jesus. I thought it would feel different. Inwardly, and this was a new story for my wife as we were talking about this yesterday, I wept for days. I didn't tell anybody. I felt even God was disappointed in me. I had to fight this dark cloud of discouragement for weeks. And I chose to fight this alone. And when you fight things alone, you lose perspective and you're not a peaceful presence anymore. Weeks later, I was having coffee with 
another new person at the church. And she told me that they had been working in social work for a long, long time. And that they were so broken and discouraged by the systems of the world and not seeing love from people who were declaring that they were Christians. That she just said, I long for a brother who wanted to first follow Jesus, be changed by Jesus, and just see what happens. And I was like, I, there's somebody else out there? And then she looked at me and said, are you that brother? And then she ended with this. If you are, you have to promise me you'll never be like those other people. And though we were so close, like we're there, then there was also this ob obligation of what not to be, like them. <laughs> and I'm like, how do I, and I just sat there in the middle of this. And something unlocked in me that day. Probably 14 years ago. That I didn't think I was crazy. I think Jesus was like sitting in this tension. Because it's a tension. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the tension. And the tension is this, that there's so many expectations of what a follower of Jesus should be like and looks like and all these things. And we sit in that tension, like, how do I do this well? And we simplify it by hiding behind ideologies that are not life-giving, but they're statements. And we just hide behind them instead of sitting with it. And that morning and that day, Jesus said, you know that tension you feel? He says, I get it. That's going to be your tension for the rest of your life. I'm like, thank you. But what I realized now was I was longing for a renewal, something new and actually life-giving, a new way of thinking, a fresh view of Jesus, not free from the tension of these things. Because we try to get freedom from tension, and that's what separates our society. We find people who just agree with us, and we sit there versus like, I want to be in the tension and see how I can wrestle these things through. I'm not called to be free from it. I'm called to be, how can I be a non-anxious presence of peace in the midst of it? I'm not saying these systems and politics aren't important. They are. They find their place. But there's a huge difference between bringing those and using them as a barometer, whether I'm a good follower of Jesus, versus bringing the presence of Jesus into those places wherever I go and wherever you go. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about renewal. We're just going to see if there's a hunger for it. There might not be, but I'm going to see if there's others willing to step into the tension to see something fresh and new. Father, we come before you. Speak to us. Help us to be bold with our love. It breaks my heart, God, that there's times... Maybe it's just me. There's times we talk about absolute love for our neighbor, and it scares us because we think there's some kind of liberal agenda or some kind of conservative agenda. There is no agenda. There's just the kingdom of God. Help us to be free and renewed in the midst of that.
In your name, amen. I agree with this definition from a guy named Mark Sayers about revival and renewal. Renewal is this. Renewal is the refreshment, the release, and advancement that individuals, that groups, churches, and cultures experience when they are aligned with God's presence. It's a resumption of our God-given purpose to partner with God fully, participating in his plan to flood the world with his presence. And then there's revival. Revival is when renewal occurs on a large scale, bringing significant advancement, growth, and kingdom fruit to a city, people group, movement, region, or nations. You see, revival is renewal gone viral. Renewal. It starts with the individual. It starts very simple. It starts within, and as followers of Jesus, it seems like we should either yearn for renewal or lament its absence. One of the two. The most dangerous spot to be is to be complacent or stagnant in the middle. From Mark's book, Reappearing Church, he says this. Renewal is built into the fabric of our world. Since the fall, God has been in the renewal business. We intuitively sense this. Everybody understands that something is wrong in the world and desires a better future. Isn't that true for all of us? We can sit here and go, there's something wrong, and we desire something better. If you right now are thinking, dude, everything is great, everything is perfect, you are in denial because some things aren't. We hope that our lives and cultures are better tomorrow than they are today. We naturally try and move toward renewal. Yet without God, our flesh-driven renewal programs, both personal and corporate, will bring about more harm than good. Because this world is constantly creating and developing things, is it not to make life better, to make life easier, whether it's with social media, or whether it's with devices, or whether it's relationship, whatever it is, the self-help books are the, some of the best-selling books because it's like, this is how you make your life better. That is a common conversation you can almost have with anybody. Do you wish things were better? Absolutely. But it's how it is implemented, is how we move forward in that where there is a difference. Last week, we celebrated Easter, did we not? Hopefully you did. And hopefully you celebrated that there's a resurrection and a reconciliation of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul wrote in his letters looking back through Jesus' resurrection. And what we know is Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In a section that we declare chapter 15, and I say it like that, because I want you to know when Paul wrote his letters, he didn't write verse 1, verse 2, chapter 1. Those things came in the 1500s to help us find things. But it's a letter. It's him pouring out his heart in response. And he talks about this idea that the resurrection isn't the end. It's actually the launching point moving forward. It's not the very end like Jesus did it, we're done, now we're just hanging out. In his letter to the Corinthians, in a, there's times when Paul writes, it's like just a little confusing. But this is what he writes. 
And if Christ had not been raised, so he's talking about like the difference of someone's faith of resurrection and not resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Meaning, he was saying, like, we're pitied if we believe in something that didn't happen. I mean, the world should literally pity us. And there are those who pity you. They're like, you're following a crutch. Like, it is not real. But if it is real, and since Christ has indeed risen from the dead, the first fruits, which is the word, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. He's declaring that Christ is the first fruits. What Christ did on the cross was the first fruits. Thing to launch everything else. You might be saying, there's a lot of the Bible that happened before Christ came. What he's saying here is that this isn't the origin of time, but the resurrection is the beginning of all things new. He understands that Jesus' resurrection was the beginning of something bigger to follow. Does the resurrection of Jesus inspire something new within you it says he was the first fruit picked in a much larger harvest that is now underway life should bring more life death to life should bring more life not stagnation as theologian nt wright says this jesus resurrection was the prototype for god's new creative work The prototype. Oh, it was real. But Jesus, God wasn't just like, I'm going to make dead things new just in my son. That is now how he works. So what do you want new in you? What do you want new for our culture? But here's my point for today. Personal renewal. Personal. Precedes corporate renewal. And that often begins with a broken heart, a change, or a transition. It starts with an individual. It just does. It starts with a change in your life, a transition, or that brokenness. And if you're like me, there's times when I'm broken or hurting. I ask God, take it away, take it away, take it away, make this right. And God's like, no, renewal comes out of that. There's something bigger. There's something greater. I'm going to show you something. I'm going to look at the book of Nehemiah, the first chapter today. We're not going to be studying the book of Nehemiah. We're just going to launch this talk around renewal and to see what's churning inside of your heart. Nehemiah chapter 1 starts like this. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, While I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Let me stop for a second. One of the things I'm always going to encourage you to do is when you're reading scripture, 
is to ask yourself a few things. But first of all, to remind yourself, God's word is the story of God. It's not the story about us. It's the story about God. And what's so important is say, where am I in this story and what am I reading? Is it narrative? Is it poetry? Is it prophecy? Is it a letter? Because we can become really flat with a lot of this. So Nehemiah is a narrative story. It's a story that tells a story. It's a fantastic story with a super bummer ending. I know you're excited to read it then. This is about a thousand years to get some context. This is about a thousand years after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. So we talk about that. So this is like a thousand years after that. And it's about 500 years after David was king, right? So they come into the promised land. They set up these tribes. They set up a kingdom. David was king. This is about 500 years even after that. But it's about 450 years before Jesus was born. So it's kind of smack in the middle of that. The Israelites had been taken into captivity. They'd been taken from their land. They had a covenant with God. It was a time in the story where if they honored God, God protected them. And that's what's very important to go, where am I in the story? It was pre-Jesus, pre-resurrection, pre-forgiveness, pre-reconciliation with God. It was still like, I honor you. God's like, if you honor me, I'll protect you. But if you turn your hearts away from me, I will allow others to take over you to see. That's where they're at. They're in captivity. Nehemiah has this really cool job where he's actually working for the king that's holding them captive. He's the cupbearer, but some think like he gets to taste the wine, like is this poisonous, which isn't that great of a job, actually, if someone's trying to kill the king. Here, you go first. But he also probably got to drink a lot of good wine or non-alcoholic grape juice, if I offended you with that. We'll go on. They come from Jerusalem to report to him, this is, this is what they said. Those who survived the exile... And are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. These are the words of Nehemiah. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before God of heaven. Notice this just for a sec. Let's sit with this. Sit with this a little bit. Days of mourning. This wasn't like, oh, I got bad news today. It kind of threw me. He wept. There was days of mourning. Not having a city wall meant that the people were defenseless against their enemies. Nehemiah discovered two things in desperate need of restoration. The first was the wall around Jerusalem to protect it. But he also wept because the hearts of the people were no longer protected either. Like a city with no wall, the enemies of the heart had complete access to these people. And he cried out. What's the temptation for a lot of us is that when we're sad or mad, we react, we respond, we fight. Nehemiah went to God. Just listen to this prayer. I mean, sit with this. These aren't just words. Hear the heart of this man. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you, before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. 
I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people are the farthest. At the farthest horizon, I will gather them there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand, Lord. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, talking about the king. And then he says, I was the cupbearer of the king. You're like, why? That's a random thing to throw in. He went to God, and then he saw where God had already placed him. God had given him a place of influence. I have access to the king. But there's a brokenness. And what caused Nehemiah to ask for favor? What caused Nehemiah to leave his job and go back to a place of brokenness? He had paid attention to his broken heart. He paid attention to the thing that made him weep. He paid attention to that thing that bothered him the most. You see, God uses broken-hearted people to begin the work of something new. He does. And I find myself, when I'm broken-hearted, I'm just begging God to take it away. And he's like, why? I want to do something new. Because out of broken-heartedness, out of brokenness, Passion can be reborn. Brokenhearted people can lead to godly leadership because it reflects God. Because we hear that God's heart is broken. And there is a tension between being brokenhearted. You see, my heart breaks because something needs to change. Now who's going to do it? In our society, we count on so many other people to do it when God's like, how about you? How about you step in? In writing about renewal, this very idea, Tim Keller says this, it's a consistent pattern of how the Holy Spirit works in a community to counteract the default mode of the human heart. How sad and corrupt would it be if a church existed out of the default mode of the human heart? That we just took, here are good practices from the world, that this seems what's right, this seems what's strong. But Keller says that renewal happens when the Holy Spirit takes us out of default mode and we step into something new. From Nehemiah, we see things to break us from our default. Questions like, who are you? What are your resources? If I was to ask you, what breaks your heart? What just breaks your heart? Go to God with both of those. Mark Sayers developed this uh, graph, if you will, to help understand potentially what renewal could look like. See, there's this phase in our life where there's decline. And we're going to mention some of these as we go along in this series. But this is idea, there's a gateway into actually doing something different where there's like this holy discontent. There's something that's just not right. And it leads into this preparation, which is our heart alignment back to God. 
And then it's contending, it's fighting, it's that spirit of like, this is not okay. And then there's these holy patterns, which is like these rhythms of disciplines. What's so interesting, sometimes when we're broken, we jump to patterns. We just jump to doing. And what he's saying, and what scripture, I believe, is saying is start with brokenness. Go to God. See what's there. Be okay with the tension. Then start stepping forward. And then there's this remnant that comes out of it. There's this small group of people who are just committed to seeing something new and different. So what is holy discontent? I just want to land on this for a few minutes and tell your story. Holy discontent is this. It's a deep dissatisfaction with either the low state of our faith, the church, and the culture. That's why it's called holy discontent. It's not just like cultural discontent, but specifically around spiritual things. It's dissatisfaction with the low state of our faith, the church, or our culture. This could be with the state of our culture. Its, its failings become painfully real to us. They deeply burden us. We yearn for something better around us. This could be the state of our church or the church. Not in a critical nitpicking sort of way. Like I like this song better than that song or this person better than that person. Not that kind of level of thing that those things could be real. But instead a genuine hunger for the church to be released into its full potential and power in our broken world. We shift from why doesn't the church to how does the church. And this could be even the state of our own lives, this holy discontent. Instead of falling into self-condemnation or paralysis, we cry out to God to change us, to start his renewal in our hearts. See, renewal follows periods of crisis and change, Transition. It's the gateway into this whole process. But there's a warning as well. You see, this power from renewal, this idea of wanting something new and fresh, can also lead you into deep, toxic, dangerous spaces. Because if you don't take the consistency of orthodox belief and orthodox practice, is like, what does scripture tell us to believe? What is scripture telling us to do? It can lead you into all sorts of things where you kind of push that aside. And you're like, no, I've got a new thing I'm about. So the energy of renewal, of freshness, also needs to be have these guardrails within what faith is all about. And that's the thing that when you do it alone, you can lose your way so deeply. That's the power of transparency and vulnerability is when you invite others into that. Let's see if this can help us a little bit. There was this man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Grew up in Germany. He was an underachieving man who got his doctorate by the age of 21. Brilliant. Wasn't raised in a Christian home per se, but was so oppressed and amazed by churches he visited, he said, this is what the church is, God's mission and plan and call. He was living during a time that the Third Reich Nazism was, was starting to grow and develop and to be strong. And he saw a lot of churches fall under that and actually start to believe and preach and teach the things that Nazism, the Third Reich, was believing. And this devastated him. It broke his heart. 
he became a part of signing what we know as the Barman Declaration, which is this declaration that these guys made, this stance that they made that the church is about following Jesus, not actually helping the growth of the enemy. But simply declaring something like that does not make it so. In 1935, he accepted an invitation to create an underground seminary to head this up that would match orthodox belief with orthodox practice, what we believe we will do. And it was the whole idea of this seminary was shared and its life was centered on prayer, on scriptures, on confession, on love, and shared rhythms, shared rhythms of faith. Much of this vision included what ended up being in one of his best-known books, Life Together and the Cost of Discipleship. He had a friend of his had heard him lecture, and his friend was actually concerned that Bonhoeffer had lost his way. He was becoming too spiritual, that he was taking too much of a risk. So he went up to visit Dietrich in his home. Dietrich decided that they would spend some time together by going for a row across a lake. The story goes like this. When the two rowers reached that far shore, Bonhoeffer led Niesel, which is friend, up a hill to a clearing which they could see in the distance, a vast field and the runways of a nearby squadron. They were German fighter planes and taking off and landing and soldiers moved hurriedly and in purposeful patterns. They looked like many ants. Bonhoeffer spoke of a new generation of Germans in training whose disciplines were being formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. He then said, it will be absolutely essential to propose a superior way if the Nazis were to be defeated. He declared, we have to be stronger than the tormentors that we find everywhere today. Meaning this, discipleship or learning what it means to really love and follow Jesus should be stronger than cultural formation. That compassion must be stronger than contempt. That following Jesus must be stronger than our social idols. And that love must be greater than all of it combined. In some ways, this prophetic stance from Diedrich Bonhoeffer is a bit laughable. You see, his seminary was small, and its season was really, really short, and the Gestapo would close it by 1937. In many ways, it was a feeble joke compared to the power of the Third Reich. But it was a prophetic seed. What does Jesus do with seeds? They start out really small. And then they grow and they bear fruit. You see, today the Third Reich is, a is just a memory. It's a shameful time and a period of life within a country and a church. But the fruits of this seminary, this community, this vision, this work that had gone out to shape Christian discipleship has inspired millions upon millions of people. And it started with a broken heart. You see, all of this, you guys, renewal. We may sit in a church right now and go, man, I can think about all the people who aren't here. Okay. 
I can think about what this church used to be or whatever you want to think. I think we just have to look at what's breaking our heart, what's holy discontent. And the enemy's going to tell you, what are you going to do about it? It's not up for you to decide, but what is God asking you to do? See, we're here not starting with a pursuit of grand influence. Like, we're not starting at that point. But instead, personal humility by allowing what breaks our heart or this holy discontent to speak to us and show us something new. But it starts in me. It starts in you. It starts in a few are you willing? God, we come before you as broken people. And the beauty that you are is that you want renewal. You can make new things come alive. So we ask you to sit that with us and join us, Father. We love you. Now may Christ dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is their breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, <coughs> that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. God bless you. May God be with you. Invite him into those dark places this week. Listen to what he has to say. God bless.